In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Oregon City Worship Podcast. Out of a desire to love our neighbors well, to care for the most vulnerable among us, and to relieve the burden on the healthcare workers of our community, we have chosen to continue suspending in-person worship for the time being, and instead we worship via podcast. Today is the fourth week of the season of Lent, and it is during the season of Lent that we consider what it means to prepare ourselves for the crucifixion, for, for recognizing Jesus as king, not a king in an earthly sense, but rather the, the kingship that Jesus declares over the whole world on the cross. And so during Lent, we consider things like repentance. We consider the things in our lives that don't look like uh, the ways of Jesus. We consider the things that we contribute, the ways we contribute to the brokenness of the world. But mostly we draw close to Jesus because the closer we draw to Jesus, the more clear those things become in our lives. And so as we worship this morning, and we consider exactly what it looks like to draw close to Jesus. I pray that you would be doing this work yourself. And how do we do this? Well, we do it through, through prayer. We do it through worship. And we do it through uh, meeting Jesus in scripture. If, if you have not yet started any uh, practice for Lent, uh, within, later on in our worship service, we'll be doing another time of breathing prayer, but it's also not too late to, to read one of the Gospels. The past few weeks in our, our sermon series, we've been going through the book of Mark, and even though we're, we're hitting several different passages out of the book of Mark, there's still a lot that we aren't going to be able to get to, and also Mark is the shortest Gospel, so if you've got a short attention span, maybe Mark is for you. So consider what it means for you to draw close to Jesus during Lent this season. Just something to let you know and, and make you aware of, we have recently started putting the sermon videos onto YouTube. If you go to our website, onebaptistchurch.org, or in your Friday email newsletter, or if you go to YouTube and search First Baptist Church of Oregon City, then you will see videos from us. We have two, two sermons up right now, as well as the video from our uh, worship service this past Wednesday on our community Lenten Zoom. And you can watch all of that at your leisure and be encouraged and challenged and, and hear God's word read and proclaimed. Also a reminder when we give tithes and offerings, we do this not out of a sense of obligation, but we do this to offer the good gifts that God has given us back to him. And we have a couple of ways that you can do that and continue supporting the mission of First Baptist Church of Oregon City as we seek to be a beacon of hope at the corner of Ninth and John Adams. One way is you can mail in your check, as you may have already been doing for uh, months now. Our mailing address is P.O. Box 1686, Oregon City, Oregon, 97045, and you can send it to First Baptist Church. Um, 
or we do also have a web portal set up now called Tithely. And in the, the description of our podcast on whatever serving you service you are using, you'll be able to click on a link and it will take you there and you can use your debit card or something called an electronic check. And uh, that will get to us that way as well. And it might be easier, save you a stamp, or if you can't find your checkbook, you can do it that way as well. We are praying for you. We, we hope and pray that you are well. We know that uh, as, as spring comes upon us, that we, we always seem to have a little bit more hope. But if you're still somebody who's discouraged, if you're uh, facing struggles and challenges, whether they're physical or mental, please don't hesitate to get in touch so that we can pray for you specifically. Our website is the numeral one baptistchurch.org. And on there is a, is a form that you can fill in and, and click send, and it will send us to our, e to our email and let us know the, uh, the ways that we can be praying for you. Uh, and we will gladly do that because it says, as it says in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us as we continue our worship service today. Hear the word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. For he has gathered the exiles from many lands, from east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in the wilderness, lost and homeless. Hungry and thirsty, they nearly died. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distress. He led them straight to safety, to a city where they could live. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done. He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. When the poor and needy search for water and there is none, and their tongues are parched from thirst, then I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will never abandon them. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. He brings his reward as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. I will open up rivers for them on the high plateaus. I will give them fountains of water in the valley. I will fill the desert with pools of water. Rivers fed by springs will flow across the parched ground. I am doing this so all who see this miracle will understand what it means, that it is the Lord who has done this, the Holy One of Israel who created it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. 
Father God, we come before you in an attitude of humility. We are humbled by your outrageous love for us. As we are reflecting upon our lives during this period of Lent, we recognize that no matter what we have done, you will never cease to love us. We thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. We receive that grace and mercy by what you accomplished on the cross. The power of the cross is not the power that James and John asked Jesus for, but the power of the cross is a suffering servant. Jesus' words to James and John were, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May our lives, Lord, be as a servant to those whom we are in the midst of. Thank you, Lord, for the prayers you have answered. Lord, your word says we need ask and you will answer. Your answer is not always the answer that we would want. You have also said your ways are not our ways. However you answer, Lord, we know it is with your perfect will. Help us to seek that perfect will in our life. We remember those in our congregation who are suffering from illness or going through treatment for cancer. We especially lift up the C-Corps family as Stacy has a rare reaction to the chemotherapy and is elected not to continue the therapy. She will now face surgery and I ask that you bring peace and comfort into her life as she faces this next facet of her recovery. Be with Richard and Sherry and the rest of the family as they are prepared, preparing to take care of her. Give them strength and courage and surround them with your love, Lord. For others who need a touch from you, Father, I pray that you will heal them physically, mentally, or spiritually, or relationally. For those who are struggling financially, I pray they put their faith and trust in you and realize that you are the one who supplies all our needs. Many of us have friends, family members, and acquaintances that have needs and prayer requests. You know each detail and have a plan for each. Help them to have patience and rely on you, Father, to meet that need. May you show your love to each person as you continue to work in their lives. I pray for our church. I pray for all the church members who have endured the pandemic. I thank each who has reached out to someone who needed encouragement during this time. You have promised us that the little things we do for those around us are big in your eyes. Thank you, Lord, for protecting most of us from contacting the virus. Those who did, I thank you that you have healed them. Lord, you are not only a good God, but you are a good God all the time. I pray for our whole program and the blessings we receive from being able to feed those who are hungry. Give Bob and Janet raised strength as they continue to lead the program. Lastly, I lift up the young people of our church to you, Lord. You know all of their prayer needs. Work in their lives as they are now contemplating a return to in-person schooling. Keep them safe as they return. I pray the power of the Holy Spirit becomes the guiding force in their lives. Be with the leaders, anoint them with the Holy Spirit as they teach these kids about what Easter means 
and that your death on the cross was the greatest gift of love ever given to mankind. Be with our pastor today as he brings us a message on the cross and power. Bless him as he speaks to us. Open our ears and hearts to receive his message. And may our podcast be a blessing to all who hear it. As we move into the fourth week of Lent, my prayer is that our hope is in you and we hold on to the assurance that what we are praying for is already accomplished in the name of Jesus. Your word promises no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We wait upon you for your definition of the good thing you will not withhold from us. As David prayed in Psalm 18.1, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In your heavenly name, I pray. Amen. Chases me 
This is Doreen Hunley reading from Mark 10, 32 through 45 from the New International Version. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I can't tell you how many times my mom asked me to do something when I was, I want to say little, but I know that it probably went up into my teenage years. Um, and mom, if you uh, end up watching the uh, the YouTube video of this or, or hear this uh I, I'm sorry that I was that way when I was younger, but I think everybody is to, to some degree. And, and it would be things like, did you get your homework done? I'll get it done. Did you get your homework done? I'll get it done. The next morning, did you get your homework done? Ooh, and I hadn't done my homework. Um, and so then I would be in, uh, in my seat in math class uh, as like in the five minutes before class started, furiously trying to get math problems done. Or there were any number of things uh, that could apply to. When we open up the book of Mark today and read this passage, this is not the first time that Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem, that he is going to be put on trial, he is going to be found guilty on false charges, he is going to be beaten, suffer, made to suffer, and killed, but will rise again. So this is the, not the second time 
that Jesus has told his disciples that they're going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to get killed. He's going to rise again. This is the third time in the book of Mark that Jesus has told his disciples, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to suffer. I am going to get killed, but I am going to rise again. And the disciples in any of the gospels are constantly going through this, this pattern where they hear something, but it doesn't quite sink in. And at best, Jesus has to say it two or three times before they, they get it. But there are so many places where it will say uh, they understood this after he had risen from the dead. And what we read today clearly is another misunderstanding by the disciples. Because here James and John are. And James and John are the sons of Zebedee. Their father's name was Zebedee, which is not a name you hear much anymore. They were also known as the Boanerges, the sons of thunder. And they had a reputation. And so as they're hearing Jesus say this, they're going to Jerusalem. We're a pretty decent way into Mark by this point. And they have seen healings. They have seen demons cast out. They have seen Jesus calm storms. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration when they, when they with Peter, were able to see Jesus uh, transformed from his earthly likeness into his divine glory and with Moses on one side and Elijah on the other and the voice of God in the midst of a cloud. And it's this great scene that was a, a callback to Israel's history. They were there for that. And they know that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're thinking of Jesus in the wrong way. They're putting him in the wrong category because Jesus' Messiah was, was not the first Messiah to come along. He was not even um, the only Messiah who was, was around, the suspected Messiah around at that point. And in fact, there were, were some groups that uh, when one person who was thought to be the Messiah would be killed for you know, trying to do something messianic that he was not obviously capable of, if he had a son or a brother, then the mantle would pass on and, and it would go that way. And so it would go. But Jesus is different. And there's been a lot of things that James and John have seen that have them convinced. And now he's going to Jerusalem. And it's a really loaded scene. Because for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where, is the holy city, uh, the city where uh, David brought the Ark of the Covenant, the, the city where uh, Solomon built the temple. It's the temple, or it's the city um, of, of prophecy and expectation for God's people at this point in the book of Mark. And they were thinking that Jesus is going to finally sort out this situation between the Israelites and the Romans and to throw off the oppression, to purify the temple, to establish justice and inaugurate an age 
of, of God's righteousness, where Israel would become the greatest uh, among the nations. But James and John have a different perspective on how Jesus is going to do this. What James and John think is that Jesus is going to do this by force. Or that maybe he'll go there and he'll do something and will be just crowned king. And I, I don't know what they think he was getting on about with all of the suffering language, because he makes it very clear what's going to happen to him. And in this passage, he's very specific. He says he's going to get flogged. They're going to beat him with a whip. Um, they're going to mock him and spit on him. And all of this happens to Jesus. And then they still ask to sit on either side of him when he comes into, when he sits upon his glorious throne. And when they think of him sitting on his glorious throne, they're thinking that this is going to be the throne over which he will you know, rule over uh, the whole earth. And sometimes before a big, uh, a big game, you know, the, uh, the captain of the soccer team or the star quarterback or uh, the, the, the hot shot basketball player uh, will give an interview and they'll say, if they're really confident going into you know, their, their game or their match, that they'll say, you know, how do you feel going into this? And they'll go, well, it's going to be a big struggle, but you know, after, after 90 minutes, I think we can come out on top. And I guess maybe they think Jesus is kind of giving a, a pregame pep talk, like, you know, it's going to be hard, but by the time, you know, the dust settles and we give 110% and we, uh, we really put it all on the line, all of those cheesy sports metaphors that, that people roll out in these interviews when they don't know what else to say. Um, maybe they think Jesus is going through that. But Jesus means something very different. And he turns their question around on them and he says, he asks them if they are able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that he's about to drink from, and are they able to be baptized with the baptism that he'll go through? Now the cup, the cup has been used, the image of this, this bitter cup has been used by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, a couple of the minor prophets as a way of talking about God's judgment on the sinfulness of the world. That, that this is the cup of God's judgment and Jesus is saying that he is going to drink this cup of God's judgment. Baptism, we know from, well, being Baptists, and I hope you know from being Baptists, and, uh, and from earlier passages in Mark, that baptism is done as a symbol of dying to an old way of life that reveled in the ways of the world that we are put under the water as a symbolism that we are dying to our sinful ways. We are dying to the ways of the world and we are rising into the resurrection and the resurrected ways of Christ. And so he says, he's going to undergo this baptism of suffering. And he says, can you, can you go through this? They think they can, but it shows their arrogance. The problem that we're dealing with here, 
is James and John are thinking in, I said that they, they had put him in the wrong column, put Jesus in the wrong column. They're thinking of Jesus in the earthly ways of power. They're thinking that Jesus's victory is going to come by the ways that all of the victories of the world happen. And you ask yourself, well, how do victories in the world happen? Somebody overpowers somebody else, pure and simple. Whoever has the most might, whoever has, whoever has the most bullets, whoever has the biggest knife, uh, whoever has the most money usually wins. That's the way of the world. Power enforced through violence. That's how things are decided in the way of the world. And that's how James and John seem to think this is going to go. And Jesus says, yes, you'll go through this, but it's not up to you and it's not up to me as to who's going to end up on my right and my left at the end. What Jesus knows that James and John don't yet know, but Jesus is about to remind everybody is that power in God's kingdom comes through sacrifice. It comes through service. And Jesus gets right down to the point and says, and I'm going to read this again. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. And this is the pattern that we see in the world all the time. We live in a world where the rich and the powerful get their way And those who are not rich and and powerful have to live in the wake of what the rich and powerful decide to do. And when when confronted with challenges to their power, um, the rich and powerful do what they have to to stay in power. They they come up with stories, they come up with narratives, they, uh, they call things fraudulent that are not fraudulent, they spend loads and loads of money trying to maintain their, their wealth and authority and their image. Um, and they, they, they lie and they won't back down. This is the way of power in our world. And they bully people and they, they push people around. And if you've ever had a bad boss, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever had, you know, if, if you are working for somebody, um, and they are a bully if they just if that's all they've ever known is how to push people around then you will know what this worldly power looks like on a much smaller scale because they push you around they order you around and if you uh, don't go along with their way then and and you don't do it exactly the way they want to then you get made fun of, or they find a way to punish you or something like that. This is the way of power in the world. But then Jesus says, it will not be so with you. Jesus says, if we are going to be his people, power looks different for us than it does for the rest of the world. Because the truth of it, friends, is this. When Jesus goes to the cross, 
that is when he's sitting on his glorious throne. Power in God's kingdom looks like Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus is on the cross, there is somebody to his right and there is somebody to his left. And they are suffering as well. And when Jesus is on the cross, it is a humiliating defeat in the eyes of the world. No one standing there that day watching Jesus crucified, hanging naked from a cross in complete humiliation, not just as a Jew, but as a human being, and especially in the eyes of the Romans, it was legitimately the most humiliating death anybody could die at that time. But yet, this is the source of Jesus's power. Jesus's victory over sin and death comes on the cross. This is the story of power in God's kingdom. And Jesus goes on to say, say it himself, is whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be a servant. And Paul says in Philippians chapter two, that Jesus was a servant to death, even death on a cross. When we as followers of Jesus want to examine what power looks like in the world, we have to look at the cross. If it isn't, if the power that's being offered us as followers of Jesus isn't power in the shape of a cross, we shouldn't be interested. We shouldn't be interested as God's people, as the church, when we are offered, <clears throat> when we are offered power by people who deal in worldly power because it's not in the shape of the cross. It's always going to, if we, if we make this bargain and we let somebody say in a position of worldly power, say that they're going to give their influence to the church, we need to be very skeptical. We need to be very hesitant because gaining that power will require us to step on the very people that Jesus says that we ought to love and care for. If we want to be seen as powerful in the world, then instead of stepping on those people, we as God's people, the church, need to be loving and caring for and serving those people. The ones that Jesus describes in Matthew 25 is the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Because it is through serving in the shape of the cross, in sacrificial ways, in ways that will cost us our worldly influence, in associating with people that are not popular and are not powerful, that is when we are doing exactly what Jesus wants us to do. That's when we are following the ways of Jesus the closest. Individually, though, you may be sitting there thinking, well, who am I? I don't have any power. 
who am I? I you know, I don't, no one, no one listens to me. I, I don't have any influence. I'm, I'm not great or important. And I would say that's not true. There's somebody who listens to you and there's somebody who pays attention to you. There's somebody to whom your opinion matters. And if we are being formed and shaped as followers in Jesus by the ways of the world, then our thoughts, our opinions, the way we live our lives, who we care for, who we pay attention to, and who we cast off to the side are going to look very different than if we are gaining our power as people who are serving and loving sacrificially in the world. And there are all sorts of voices we can listen to and all sorts of sources of information that we can be uh, considering. But when we are making our way through the world individually, we need to live our lives with the power of the cross, not the power of the world. The power of the cross acknowledges that every human being on planet Earth and the ones on the International Space Station, they all matter. That every human life is important to God. And that our task of loving and serving people is not going to make us great in the eyes of the world. No one is going to uh, exalt us for living humble, sacrificial lives day to day. You are not going to become a social media influencer, uh, as they call people who have lots and lots of followers on social media channels. You're not going to become an influencer by living the way of the cross but you are going to be faithful to Jesus and the people that Jesus served are going to see you as great in their eyes, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is. When the power of the world extends its power to us, it is always a deal that will end up the exact opposite of the cross. The world's power will always crush someone. The world's power will always oppress someone. The world's power will always make sure that someone stays in a position of high power and wealth and authority and that somebody else is subservient. But if we are living our lives in the shape of the cross, we are loving people, we are serving people, we are seeing what is broken in the world, and we are bringing the healing of Christ and the presence of Christ into those situations and setting people free, because that's what Jesus did on the cross. Now, how do we go about doing this? I think the first thing that we have to look at is what are the voices that are influencing us, that are forming us? Because we're all kind of, uh, we're all kind of like clay pots. 
And if you've ever seen somebody work a piece of clay on a, on a pottery wheel, they can, they can work it in different ways and make different shapes out of it. Um, or if you are very untrained, well, you just make a whole lot of ashtrays. Um, but I don't even know if people use ashtrays anymore, but that's beside the point. We can be formed by the ways of the world into something that looks like the world where power is enforced through violence and money, where somebody's constantly squished while somebody else rises to the top. Or we can be formed in the ways of the cross. And sometimes the ways of the world put on the clothing of Christ. And sometimes it can be confusing. But let me say this again. If it isn't power in the shape of the cross, we shouldn't be interested. And after that, as long as we're making, letting the voices that, that influence us and form us and shape us be the ones that are themselves in the shape of the cross, in love expressed through sacrifice, or as biblical scholar William Lane writes, the order of life for the common dealings of the disciple is to be love expressed in the form of service. We get about that. We get about doing that. Because when we're seeing the world through the eyes of the cross and when we're formed and shaped by the power of the cross, then we will start to see those people that we can love and serve. And we love and serve each other in the church and we love and serve people who are in our communities and in our neighborhoods. The cross is going to come into a much bigger focus from here on out. Because in the book of Mark, it's right about Right after last week, last week we read from chapter 8, and this week we're in chapter 10. And somewhere around this time, the focus starts to turn from uh, just Jesus' teachings and, and miracles and everything like that to what love expressed through self-sacrifice looks like. And friends, let me say this. When we live in the ways of the cross when we live in the ways of Jesus, we truly live. We truly live the lives that God meant for us to live. And it won't always be easy. But when we are following the ways of the cross, we are always going with Jesus, who has gone before us, and who comes with us alongside us and has our backs as well, because this is the way of the cross.
During the season of Lent, we have been as a church practicing breathing prayer and learning what it means and, and how it helps shape us as followers of Jesus. This past Wednesday, we had a community Lenten Zoom with four other churches from around the Oregon City area, from an, around the neighborhood that our church is in. And for our worship service, we introduced them to the idea of breathing prayer. And afterwards, a member of First Baptist Church sent me a text, and it said this, My heart rate is normally 80 to 88 beats per minute. During the breathing prayer time, it went down to 60. I loved it. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest that this person had experienced a calming and a relaxation from breathing prayer. Because one of the things that breathing prayer is designed to do is to reconnect us to the idea that we are not souls that are just trapped inside of bodies waiting to break free. Because that's not a Christian concept. That's a different concept called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that the spirit is good and the flesh is evil and we should do things to try to help our spirit to thrive and to uh, to escape from our flesh and while yes there is absolutely a spiritual element of of everything that's going on there's nothing in scripture that condemns us as created beings. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the world, and as he was creating, he blessed it, and he created humanity, and said, humanity, along with all of creation, is very good. And God has never gone back on that blessing. Breathing prayer helps us to remember that we are created not to be divided beings that are constantly at war uh, with ourselves, but rather that our, uh, our mind, our body, our spirit is supposed to be one living, united entity, but that is surrendered to God. And that's what's so helpful about breathing prayer, is it recognizes that our breath is more than just a function of our body that keeps us alive, that our breath is a gift from God. It recognizes the presence of Jesus in our own bodies. Because in Colossians, Paul tells us that 
that Christ holds all things together and every breath we have is a gift from God and we can give it back to God through practices like breathing prayer. Breathing prayer isn't supposed to be a, a replacement for uh, your any other prayer practice that you have or any other prayer time that you find fruitful and fulfilling and where, uh, where you sit before God, uh, sometimes in silence and sometimes you bring your words. Breathing prayer is supposed to be something to sustain us in between those times and to fulfill what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and, and pray without ceasing. So with that attitude in mind, I want to introduce uh, a, a prayer for breathing prayer today, and it's called the Jesus Prayer. The Jesus Prayer is a very old prayer. Uh, it's thousands of years old, and people have been saying it for a very long time. And it takes an inhale and an exhale and an inhale and an exhale to say. So technically it takes two breaths to say, but the first inhale is Jesus Christ, then you exhale and say, as you're saying, son of the living God, you inhale as you say, have mercy on me, and you exhale as you say, a sinner. So it's Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so we'll go through it. Uh, Katie will say, inhale, and then I will do the prayer. And then you'll hear Katie say exhale, and you'll hear me say the other part of the prayer. And we'll go through it a few times. And then I'm intentionally going to leave a little bit of silence uh, at the end so that you can do one on your own if you should so like. Inhale. Jesus Christ. Exhale. Son of the living God. Inhale. Have mercy on me. Exhale. A sinner. Inhale. Jesus Christ. Exhale. Son of the living God. Inhale. Have mercy on me. Exhale. A sinner. Inhale. Jesus Christ. Exhale. Son of the living God. Inhale. Have mercy on me. Exhale. A sinner. Hear the word of the Lord. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without fault. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. 
He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We thank you for joining us for worship today, and we pray that as we have uh, prayed and sung and heard God's word read and proclaimed, that we would all have drawn closer to Jesus together. Worship is important for God's people, and just because it looks different right now doesn't mean that we are not God's people gathered for worship. If there is any way that uh, that we can love and serve you. If there is any way that you need, any reason you need to get in touch with us, again, our website is onebaptistchurch.org or our email address is baptist.church at comcast.net and we would be happy to hear from you. If there is any doubt in your mind, let me say this. God loves you. God cares for you. God's whole attitude for you is love. No matter what you've done or what you think about yourself, God loves you. And we know this through his son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is what God has to say. I'd like to thank our director of worship and youth, Melissa Mellinger, for leading us in music today. I'd like to thank Jeannie Vance for our piano prelude. I'd like to thank Jim Leatherman, our church moderator, for leading us in prayer this morning. I'd like to thank Katie Witham for leading the uh, First Baptist Church readers in our creative scripture readings. And I'd like to thank Gary and Doreen Hunley, our audio engineers, for making everything sound good. And remember, love God, love your neighbor, wear your mask, and wash your hands. <laughs>